Let's pray as we go to God to hear his word. Our Father, we ask that you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. And by your spirit, let us believe it and obey it. And may we learn to abhor our sin and law-breaking and to then flee to Jesus and to cling to him by faith. Help us to hold fast um, in the face of many gales of false doctrine to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ that has been passed down to us. In his name we ask, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We will be doing an overview of Galatians 3, but I think uh, verses 10 through 14 are a nice summary of the contents of Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I'm used to being able to say last week you remember, but many of you weren't here. So I'll kind of summarize last week a little bit. I decided because we had just gotten through Galatians 3 on our journey through Galatians. Uh, before all this started, I was going to do a summary anyways to kind of remind us of where we had been and, and of the argument because Galatians is so sequential, it's important to understand what comes before. And now that we've been apart for two months, it's important to, or it's very helpful, I think, to summarize uh, the first three chapters before we begin chapter four. And so last week I did a summary of chapters one and two. And there we see that the point of, of Galatians really overall is peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. How do we have peace with God? And I pointed out last week that the Christian message of peace with God comes more in the format of uh, news rather than many religions come in the format of instruction manual. And uh, if we're going to analyze a piece of news, we have to analyze two things. We have to analyze the source and the content of that. And so the first two chapters were Paul defending himself as a source, as a messenger of God, really. And we saw um, that if we reject Paul's gospel that he preached to the Galatian church, that is salvation by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, if we reject that, we reject Christ. And then this week we'll uh, overview chapter 3, which is Paul's defense of the content of his message. Um, so here in chapter 3, he labors to prove that that thesis, that justification is by faith apart from works of the law. And we see in this chapter that to reject Paul's gospel is to reject God's promise to us. 
So we'll jump into um, Galatians 3 this morning. And I, I printed an outline. It was on the back if you didn't get one um, to kind of help us go through. So the first, um, we'll, we'll be going through the second half of that outline this morning of chapter 3. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he, he tells the Corinthians, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Which in that time, lofty speech and wisdom were what mattered to those people. Um, in, in, pro, in proclamation, it was the beauty of the oratory, the, the skill of, of, of rhetoric that mattered most. And, and here, wisdom is probably talking about Gnostic wisdom, like a higher knowledge kind of thing. And these are the things that mattered most to these people. And Paul said, I'm not going there. I'm coming to preach Christ and Him crucified, and that's it. Now, we live in a very similar culture. Um, it, it's not oftentimes the content of a message that matters, but it's the format that matters to a lot of people. Speaking collectively, um, we, we are a special effects society. You know, st- stimulate our senses, tug on our heartstrings, but, but rigorous thought and careful reasoning w- invite yawns. The idea that you might be able to arrive at, a, a, at true propositions through reason, and particularly through scripture-informed, spirit-illumined reason, is treated with skepticism. And for Paul, it's very important that the Galatians understand his reasoning. Why is his gospel true? Is his message actually reliable? Is it cohesive? And so he lays out reasoned arguments to prove his case here in chapter 3 and actually into chapter 4. We, we just haven't got there yet. Um, so this is Paul defending the content of his message. And um, Point number 2, you'll see in your outline, um, chapter 3 is the veracity of the content of Paul's message. We can draw from that that to reject Paul's gospel is to reject God's promise. So the first 18 verses of chapter 3 are, are about that idea of salvation is by faith apart from works. And verse 1 begins, Paul kind of starts here with the experiential side of the Galatians' Christian history. Um, he's he's going to ask them about how they've experienced it thus far, and was it by faith or was it by works? And so we see this, this first point in, in under um, point A, is that the word comes by faith apart from works. The, the word comes in verse 1. Um, chapter 2 ended in verse 22 by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's saying the Galatian false teachers and, and those who are believing the gospel that they're preaching is voiding the death of Christ. It's making it null and void by turning a gospel his gospel into a works-based righteousness. And, of course, this is foolishness. Paul perceives this to be foolishness. That's what he says in the beginning of verse 1. He, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly pro- portrayed as crucified. So, basically, he's saying, you're, you're acting so foolishly. You, have you gone mad? Have you gone crazy? Has someone cast a spell on you? 
When you first believed, at that moment when you first believed, was it not the word of the gospel placarded Christ before your eyes that caused you to believe? And remember how you believed. Was it by faith or was it by works? That that word of the cross is the place the Christian life begins. Paul came publicly and he portrayed or placarded Christ before their eyes. He preached Christ to them and now they're perverting the gospel. They're morphing it from Christ did all to a gospel of Christ did most and I do some. But to vary the details of the gospel is to corrupt the word which is God's means of bringing us into the kingdom. We know well these scriptures, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Salvation must begin with faith apart from works in in the word, in hearing the gospel. And that really is the nature of what it means to um, have faith, is to believe, to believe a word. The Greek word pistis is... We sometimes think that believe and faith are different things, but the Greek word is is the same. It's translated both ways. Um, And it's translated in the noun form, the verb form. Uh, But it's the Greek word pistis, to believe, to have faith. And if we're going to believe, we have to first hear. That's what we read in, in Romans chapter 10. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? Um of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we can look back on our own Christian experience and we, if we're honest, have to say, it's the word of Christ. That's where it all began. Someone placarded, preached that word of Christ before our eyes. And it may have not been at that moment, but at some point that word landed, it took root in our hearts and began to grow. And how foolish it would be to wander from that word. Now the reason that word lodged in our hearts is not um, because we're, we're more intelligent than someone else. Or um, it's not that we, we followed carefully a trail of evidence. It's that our hearts were softened by the Holy Spirit. That It may have been preached to you ten years before you actually believed but at some point your heart was softened by the Holy Spirit. And Paul's next point is, is a series of questions to help the Galatians think through um, their early Christian experience as the Spirit worked in and among them. So uh, point number two there under point A, the Spirit comes by faith apart from works in verses 2 through 5. The Spirit comes by faith apart from works. And in this, these few verses, he asks four questions. The first question is, did you receive the Spirit by works or by hearing with faith? In other words, do you recall when that newness of life came upon you? Was it a result of you working for it, of you laboring for it? Did you begin to experience the conviction of sin and the strength to resist sin or or the manifestations of the Spirit's power among you by, say, keeping food laws or, or obeying circumcision laws? Or was it when you heard the gospel and believed? The second question is basically, if that's the case, if you if if you 
first received the Spirit by faith, why are you now changing your tune? Will you begin the Christian life by the grace of the Spirit and now perfect yourself by works of the law? He he says in verse 3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? His third question is, is really, uh, he, he's basically saying, think back now on your suffering that you've received as a result of becoming a Christian. Why did you suffer for the name of Christ if you're going to go it alone on your own righteousness? Why, why bear the name of Christ at all? They may have received rejection uh, by their family because they, they picked up the cross of Christ and were bearing his name. He says, you didn't have to suffer that. If you're going to go at your own, you don't need the name of Christ. You don't need to carry his cross. Did you suffer those things in vain? His fourth question in 2 through 5 is, what about the signs and works done among you by the Holy Spirit? Did, Did you earn those things by your merits, by circumcising yourselves? Were they done so that you'd believe in yourself and your own ability to keep the law? Or were they done so you would believe the gospel that accompanied those works? So he's asking them to think back on their Christian experience. Was it really by your works that all this happened? Or was it by faith and hearing? And if we look back on our own experience, we have to attribute every last step to God's grace. Every last bit of our salvation to the working of the Word and the Spirit in our lives. No part of it was obtained by our own merits. Uh, I, I love in the Shorter Catechism, it asks about those three major components of our salvation, justification, sanctification, adoption, and it asks about each one, um, what are they? What are these things? What is justification? What is sanctification? What is adoption? And the answers all begin pretty much the same way with slight variants that actually make a lot of sense. But it answers, justification is an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. So our salvation, head to toe, from beginning to end, is the work of God's free grace. It begins and ends with Him, and He works by His Word and by His Spirit in our lives. So Paul's been interacting with the Galatian uh, Christians' experiences in verses 1 through 5, and now he shifts his focus slightly in his argument about justification by faith alone to a a redemptive historical or biblical arguments. How was Father Abraham justified? How, in the covenant framework that God has set up, does justification work? Was Is it by faith or is it by works of the law? So number three there, Abraham and faith apart from works. Verses 6 through 10, he says, and this is a paraphrase, he basically says, look, look, even Abraham, the father of Judaism, the mediator of the covenant of circumcision, he was justified by faith. He says, basically, we're justified in the same way as Abraham was. God reckoned him righteous. He counted him righteous. He thought about him as righteous. 
because Abraham had faith, not because of his works. In fact, Paul makes a big point of that in Romans 4, that he was justified prior to circumcision. Paul says here in 6-10 through 10 that the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles in the same way as he justified Abraham. And so he preached this gospel to him. And the gospel is, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the blessing of Abraham is not through circumcision, but by faith. And that's important because you can see the Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatia saying, kind of holding the works of Abraham over the people's head. Basically, you must be circumcised if you're going to be a son of Abraham. You must obey like Abraham did if you're going to be blessed and receive his inheritance. But Paul's argument is convincing and liberating. He he says, look at how Abraham was justified. That is how we're justified, not by works of the law. Works of the law are not prerequisite for justification. Unless they're Jesus' works. But Paul here says, you actually put yourself in a position of great peril by relying on works of the law. He turns next in the next point to the nature of a covenant. How does a covenant work? And it shows how a covenant work shows how incongruous the Galatian heresy is with God's unfolding plan of redemption. So covenant and faith apart from works is the next point in three, uh, 10 through 18. Um, and the first half of that is uh, covenant blessing and cursing in 10 through 14. Um, so the, 10 through 14 is the live by the law, die by the law passage. If you want to make law a basis of your righteousness, go ahead <laughs> But if you want to do it on one point, you're going to have to do it on the whole thing. You, you, you don't get to pick and choose. It's either law or promise. And in verse 11, he quotes from Leviticus that the ones who, who do them will live by them. The problem is those who don't do them are under a curse. And that's the covenant framework of the law. Blessing for keeping the law, cursing for disobedience. So, Paul says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. The implication being nobody can keep them perfectly. And Paul points us to the solution, which is faith in Christ. Christ, he says, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By his curse of death on the tree, he became a curse for us. And that's why Paul quotes from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And we have basically three options when it comes to finding right standing before God. Uh, We can obey the law perfectly, which is an impossibility. We know that. Secondly, we could bear our own curse for law-breaking. That is, basically break the law and endure God's wrath. Or we can believe in Jesus, who became a curse for us on our behalf. Those are the options. And if we choose to pick out one part of the law that we think we can stand on, on our own two feet, we're kind of attempting to choose option one, to to obey the law for ourselves. 
but we're actually choosing option two because nobody can keep it. We want to bear, we're going to bear our own curse for trying to keep the law. It really is live by the law, die by the law. Now Paul goes on to, pr- to point out that the, the very nature of a covenant excludes this interpretation of the Judaizers. The way a covenant works, he, he, in uh, 3.15-18, the nature of a covenant, Paul uses a human illustration. He says, even with man-made covenants, once one has been ratified, a second one doesn't change it or annul it. You can think of maybe a man and a woman get married and they covenant together before uh, God and before their friends and relatives. And then maybe later they join a new church and they also make a second covenant with the church in, in covenant membership. Well, the, fir- the second covenant doesn't, it may uh, relate to the first, but it does not annul or change the first that has already been ratified. The covenant with Abraham, a covenant of promise, which Paul says was given to the seed, singular, that is Christ, the future seed, is not annulled or added to by the covenant of Moses, by the law covenant. A promise is a promise, and it will come to pass unconditionally. We know this kind of instinctively, that inheritance is not something that's earned. Inheritance is a natural right of the heir. And Paul is quite plain in these passages that the heir to the promise of Abraham is the seed, singular, is Christ. He is the heir to Abraham's promise. And once again, we see Christian faith is is not an instruction manual, but a piece of news, a good news of a promised inheritance granted to the rightful heir. And it's not some news that we kind of observe from afar, like praise God that Jesus inherited the the blessing of Abraham. But it's news that we get to partake of ourselves because Christ has mediated a better covenant, Hebrews says. He died to redeem us. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, it says, He died to redeem us from transgressions committed under the first covenant. And now we're not rebels and outcasts anymore. And we're not even, which would be grace still, we're not even undesirables kind of peering in through the windows looking at the happy covenant family inside. We are adopted sons of daughters, sons and daughters. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We share the same father. So in, in Christ, we are sons and daughters of Abraham and heirs of a promise. A promise is a promise. To reject Paul's gospel of grace through faith alone apart from works is to reject that promise. It's to say, I'm going to try to attain it on my own merits. Now, naturally, this is a somewhat polemical letter, and there's going to be questions and objections that will arise. So Paul tries to confront those uh, now. He says, uh, basically, the questions and objections are, well, what's the point of the law covenant then? Why did God institute that? Is the law contrary to the covenant of promise? So point B there on your outline, the purpose of the law, um, 19 through 29. And, and the first question is, why the law in 19 through 20? 
Why the law then, Paul? And his answer is because of transgressions. Which basically we would interpret in the same way as we, we read it in Romans 5 is to increase transgressions. That is to say it was given to show just how bad off we are on our own and, and how much we need Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. His explanation of this in these verses includes some of the most challenging words in the book. Um, He says in verse 19 that the law was put in place by an intermediary through angels. He says an intermediary implies that there is more than one, but God is one. And so these, these are very hard words, but I think they're very important, so I want to explain them briefly, and, and you can go back and listen to the original sermon on this if you want a more robust answer. But um, basically, what he's saying, in my opinion, is the Mosaic law was more contractual in nature than the Abrahamic, which is promise, in nature. The Mosaic Law is a bilateral covenant. That means that there's, there's two parties and they both have obligations. Whereas the promise to Abraham was unilateral. God alone did it. The Mosaic Covenant was mediated by Moses and witnessed by angels, which implies two parties. Whereas God is one, implying that the promise was given by God and God alone. So with the Mosaic Covenant, we know... Israel never held up to their end of that covenant, which is obedience, and neither have we. So to put our hope in that law covenant as a means of justification is absurd when we have the guarantee of a promise. So the purpose of the law was to increase transgressions. Um, Which brings about the second question, is the law then contrary to promise? In verse Uh, verses 21 through 23. If the promise is so much better, and if the law covenant increases transgression, while the promise actually bestows life and righteousness, should we cast off the law altogether? Should we just get rid of it then? And Paul, of course, is emphatic. He says, certainly not. It is actually precisely because these two distinct covenants serve two distinct purposes that they complement one another. We don't cast off the law. They complement one another. If they were conflicting covenants purporting to do the same thing, then we would have to choose. But they serve different and complementary functions in God's economy. So instead of undermining the promise, the law serves the promise. The law's purpose is to increase sin, to point us to Christ, which serves the promise. So when the law exposes our sinful hearts, we're driven to the grace of the promise. Now he goes on to kind of expound the relationship between law and promise here um, in in verses 23 through 26. A temporary bondage. This is what the law is, was a temporary bondage. And he uses two illustrations here. Uh, The first is a prison and the second is a guardian or attendant. So the law imprisoned us under sin. The law is a prison. We're captive to sin and death, hanging over our heads with no possible escape. The more I think of a, of a, 
guy in like a, a dirt dungeon and he's got a spoon. And the more, more he digs, the more he tries to dig himself out with the law, the deeper down into the dungeon he goes and the further he is from actually escaping. He says, it's a temporary bondage though. It imprisoned us until, verse 23, until the coming faith would be revealed. So historically, the era of the law bound the people of God under sin. They could not keep their end of the covenant. But when faith was revealed, that is when the object of faith was revealed, Christ, that era came to an end. And the same was true of us personally as well. As long as we're living life without faith in Christ, we're bound under a law. We are lawbreakers deserving of wrath. But once we're given faith to believe upon Christ, then we're liberated. Then we have freedom. And the second illustration of uh, the law is also really a bondage illustration. It's that of the guardian or attendant. And you may have heard of it as like a tutor, um, that the law was a tutor, which has the idea of teaching us about Christ. But the word, and you may remember from the sermon on this passage, the Greek word is paedagogos. And the role of this this person, a paedagogos, was kind of usually a slave of more, maybe a more wealthy family, and his job basically was to follow around this young lad and make sure he did everything he was supposed to do. <laughs> Go to school, do your homework, don't play with un- unruly friends. This was the job of this, this slave. And what happened, what ultimately is the result of this Pythagogos relationship is that it places a free boy under the authority of a slave, a step removed from his father and his father's direct authority and under a form of instruction that's devoid of any fatherly affection. The lexicon, uh, Greek lexicon Thayer has a, good comment on this that the mosaic law is likened to a tutor or guardian because it arouses the consciousness of sin and is called a guardian unto christ because those who have learned by experience with the law that they are not and cannot be commended to god by their works welcome more eagerly the hope of salvation offered to them through the death and resurrection of christ the son of god So we as human beings are tempted by the allure of self-righteousness, that we can do it ourselves. And Paul wants us to understand that by faith in Christ, we are freed from the bondage of the law. We're freed from that prison, that dungeon. We're freed from that Pythagogos who follows us around and says, Did you do this? Did you do this? He says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So we have freedom in Christ. We have full adoption directly under the affection of our Father through faith apart from works of the law. Now the final uh, passage in, in chapter 3, he summarizes kind of his point by pointing us to our baptism. That's point C, baptism into Christ, 27 through 29. Um, Law-based instruction manual religions 
have a way of segregating members. You know, the haves and the have-nots, the, the righteous and the less righteous, the holy and the less holy. And the Galatian heretics were in this, this category. It, if you will receive circumcision, then you will really be a son of Abraham and an heir of the promise of God. And those who, who don't have circumcision are not a part of that group. The grace of God's promise makes all who believe equals in Christ's kingdom. Back in verse 26, Paul said that for great, for in Christ Jesus, those are important words when you read Paul, in Christ Jesus, union with Christ is very important to Paul. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, here in verse 27, he teaches us about this by reminding us of our baptism. Baptism is an external sign that points to our union with Christ. He uses the illustration basically of a coat, of a garment. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, is what he says. So in union with Christ, we're buried with him in baptism, in which we're also raised with him, Colossians 2. Paul says everyone who has received Christian baptism has put on Christ. You've put on that external cloak that says, I'm united to Christ. And like a coat that maybe, I think I used the illustration last time of this coat that I have that has the word Lowell on it, the name Lowell from Portland Cement because I got it for free. But I wear this coat and and sometimes people tease me and say, hello, Lowell, but I'm not Lowell. In baptism, you put on a coat and it says Christ. It says, I am Christ. I identify with Christ. And so that removes for everyone the distinctions of circumcision or uncircumcision or male or female or or what nationality you are. It levels the playing field. We're all united with Christ. He says, if you're truly united with Christ, as your baptism would preach then you are one of Abraham's offspring because you are in Abraham's offspring. You are in Christ. You're united to him. And he's the heir of the promise. If If you're in Christ, you are a son of Abraham and an heir according to the promise. You're one of God's people. And he is your God. You've been reckoned righteous as Abraham was reckoned righteous. You can expect to inherit a homeland, a better homeland, a heavenly one, as Abraham hoped for. It's your promise in Christ. And that promise comes only by faith, because faith is what unites us to Christ, apart from works of the law. So the good news, the gospel here that's so important to Paul that he's defending is that we can have peace with God by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, to the glory of God. And the, the law condemns us. It exposes our sinfulness and makes self-obtained righteousness an impossibility. But God, through Christ, will reckon us righteous if we are his son if we're in his son. Um, but by faith, he unites us to him so that, that we have righteousness imputed to us. And grace upon grace, we're made God's sons and daughters and heirs of an unfathomably rich inheritance. That's the most 
mind-blowing thing to me. I think J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he makes a point, a strong point of saying that the doctrine of adoption is one of the more neglected parts of our salvation, that we've actually been made sons and daughters of God in Christ. That's an amazing thing. And, and by that fact, we have a claim to the inheritance promised to Abraham and earned by Christ. Praise the Lord. Amen.